How is everybody? All right. Well, this morning we uh, will continue with our series on the book of Hebrews, and I'm excited for that. My wife, Lisa, has an appreciation for art. Uh, her, her mom is an artist and for many years was an art teacher, so that was just kind of part of her world growing up. So imagine I saved up money and I, des- I decided to surprise her by planning a, a trip to Paris for us to see the Louvre, or however you say that, um, in France, a famous art museum in Paris. And so we did, and, and once we got there, you know, she's totally excited, and, and we're ready to go. And, and once we got there, I, I only planned ten minutes for us to run through it. Because how long does it take to, to look at something, Right? You just go through and you're like, seen it, seen it, seen it, seen it, seen it, seen it. Boom, done. We're ready to go. Right? No. Anyone who knows art knows that you need to set aside time to stare at good art. To study it. To take it in in order to uh, truly appreciate it. And that's something I appreciate about the book of Hebrews in particular. The author relentlessly sets the work of Jesus before our eyes. So that we don't just glance at it and move on like, boom, done, okay. But that we stare at it, study it, take it in so that we can truly appreciate it. Because, you know, it's easy To not appreciate, not fully appreciate what Jesus has done for us. So that's why we as a preaching team keep hitting this over and over along with the author of Hebrews. I would say along with the author of Hebrews, we're seeking gospel renewal. I mentioned this term a few weeks ago. It's it's a term coined by an author and pastor from New York named Tim Keller. Gospel renewal is when... We are gripped by the goodness of the good news. When it's not old news for us anymore. When it's not something that we just mentally acknowledge and yawn and move on. But something that lights up our hearts and impacts the way that we live. And I want to keep preaching towards that. I want to keep preaching towards that in my own life. And I want to keep preaching towards that in our lives because so often we don't fully appreciate. We don't fully take advantage of what we have as believers because of the work of Jesus. It's like this phone. I read this week that, that um, these phones have more computing power. And this one phone than all of NASA at the time when we put uh, the first man on the moon in one phone. And yet for many of us, the extent of what we do with it is make a phone call or at maybe the very most put a smiley face in our text message. We underutilize all the benefits available to us. And with that, I apologize for... Comparing Jesus to an iPhone, I'll I'll try to never do that again. But 
So often we underutilize all the benefits that we have because we have Him. Sometimes we barely scratch the surface. You know, salvation is a costly, precious gift. But like a toddler given an amazing gift, I don't want to be content to just play with the box all day. Is anyone else with me? Do you know what I mean? You know, one of the aspects made available to us at the cross is once for all cleansing. Once for all cleansing. So the question this morning is, do we fully appreciate that? Are we taking full advantage of that in our lives? Or are we underutilizing it? And so I want to uh, extend the introduction a little bit longer this morning, if you'll bear with me. Because before we dive into the text, I think it's important for us to, to take a step back and ask, why do we even need once for all cleansing? And I'll try to illustrate that. I think there's, I think there's two sides to the answer. You know what? This is going to be, I'm right-handed. There we go. Let's let that be the baseline. I think there's two sides to the answer for why we need once for all cleansing. And the first is the greatness of God. The greatness of God. You see, I believe that we forget our need for once and for all cleansing, or at least we take it for granted when God becomes downsized like a little buddy or a pocket-sized God. Even for people who say the right things, if we're honest, we sometimes treat God like this. We sometimes treat God like a pocket-sized God who says things like, Please, 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 can you make a little room for me in your life? Or, what, you offended me? You jokester, go on. Or by our actions, we say things to God. Like, God, I'm going out with my friends, or I'm going to go to this movie. Why don't you stay home? And he says, okay. I'm here if you need me. Or we say, God, I took sociology 101. Or I listened to this TED talk last week, so let me tell you how to run the world. Or God, I'll, I'll, I'll handle how to manage money, sex, and power, but I need you to help me feel good. And he says, okay, that's what I'm here for. At times in big ways and in subtle ways, we have made God pocket-sized, fun-sized, and bite-sized. And when God is small, there's not much difference between He and I. You see, I, I could maybe reach Him with my own efforts. He's, he's just like me, only God, right? But Scripture 
explodes our vision of the greatness of God. I think of Moses saying, God, I want to see you. And God says, you, you can't see me and live. You can't lay eyes on me and live. And so, and so what God does is he surrounds Moses with these rocks. And on top of that, he puts his hand over Moses and he passes by and then lets Moses at the very end just see his afterglow because, because God is so intense that that Moses couldn't handle even looking at him, or even even before that in the book of Exodus, uh, God says to Moses, don't let the people come up the mountain where my presence is dwelling. Because, because if they come up here, my presence will break out against them. He is so intensely... And radiantly pure, it would be too much for them to handle, for the fallen humanity to handle. And not only us, not only fallen humans, but even I think of the angels in Isaiah 6 and how there's this vision of God in the throne room and and they're covering themselves with their wings. And like someone seeing a huge firework, they can't help but constantly cry out, Holy, Holy Holy, and even Isaiah, as he's seeing this vision, says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I think of how when people came and encountered God's glory, not, not, not His presence, but just His glory, how, how they would fall on their faces. And not just the Old Testament, I think of John, uh, the disciple who, he's called the disciple who Jesus loved. And I think of how at the Last Supper, he's leaning against Jesus, leaning on Jesus' chest. But then in Revelation chapter 1, he sees a glorified Jesus and he falls down on his face like he's dead. I remember reading something in high school back when I was kind of into the uh, Jesus is my homeboy thing. I remember reading, if Jesus showed up in the room right now, we would not give him a high five. We would fall on our faces. The New Testament keeps going. 1 Timothy 6.16 God dwells in an unapproachable light. No human ever has seen or can see Him. The intensity of His holiness is too much for us to handle. His very nature is at odds with evil. And I'm glad for that, guys. I'm glad that He's not just kind of okay with evil. I'm glad that He's not just kind of okay with sex trafficking and murder and greed and injustice. His very nature is at odds with evil. He is so intensely holy that His very presence runs against it. But the problem is, there is evil in me. And so what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And that leads me To the second side, you see, there's the greatness of God and there's also the greatness of our sin. The greatness of our sin. Sometimes we think of sin as a little boo-boo or a no-no that we do. We don't see how ugly it is. Maybe we think it can be erased when we do something good. 
But sin is more than an isolated act. It's our entire disposition, our way of being that says to God, I reject you over my life. I'll be in charge now. In essence, it says, God, you're dead to me. You see, that's our sin. It's not a little misdeed. It's our way of being that turns our back on God. Some of you remember uh, the game Operation from back in the day. Sometimes we think of sin like, like, like getting off track, right? And the game goes, eh, and then we get back on track. Eh, back on track. But if it was Operation, our sin is more like, it's not that we get off track, it's that we live off track. It's our way of being, rejecting God and all that flows from that thoughts, words, and actions constantly piling up a debt of offenses that we could never repay. Do you see the situation? The greatness of our God and the greatness of our sin. But like Profe Kerwin said last week, we were made for a relationship with God. That's what we were made for. That's what our hearts long for. So what are we going to do? How do we get from here to here? How do the likes of us dwell with the likes of Him? How do we bridge this impossible divide? That is the great dilemma of Scripture. How will an unholy people dwell with a holy God? Like we were made to do. How can we ever be one with God and live? The answer, once for all, cleansing. The question we've been asking is, why do we need it? And this is why we need it. That's why we need it. It is such a gift, a gift to be appreciated and made the most of in our lives. So now that we've seen why we need it, I want us, I want us to look at what it's about. I want us to look at the details. And the details are outlined in our passage today, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. So I invite you to turn there if you're able. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. Appreciate you bearing with me with a longer introduction this morning. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. And we'll break it up into three quick sections, okay? We'll kind of jog through these sections. Number one, what can't do it? Number two, what can do it? And then number three, how we do it. So can't, can, how. Okay. The first section is found in verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 4. Let's read. For since the law 
has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities that can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So this is the can't section, okay? It's about what can't cleanse us from sin once for all. Verse 1 says this, The law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the animal sacrifices laid out in the law, the bulls and the goats, can't do it. They can't make us perfect. And the proof of that is in the very fact that the whole system requires for them to be repeated over and over. Imagine that uh, Pastor Ralph and I were invited to do a a wedding together, like we did last week. And it's a bit far away, so we're going to drive together, and I offered to drive him. But the day before... I get this terrible flat tire. And so Ralph, Pastor Ralph calls me and says, Hey, uh, I don't mind picking you up if you, know, if, if you need me to. And I say, No, no, no. Don't worry about it. I fixed it. I got a permanent solution. And so the day comes, and I go to pick up Pastor Ralph, and we're running a bit late. I'm running behind, and so we're kind of feeling the pressure. These weddings mean a lot to people. And so I pick him up, we're running late, and then we drive two minutes, and, and I pull over. And I put some air in the tire. And then get back in the car, and we drive two minutes. And I pull over, and I put some air in the tire. And then we drive two minutes, and I pull over, put air in the tire, drive two minutes, pull over, put air in the tire. If you were Pastor Ralph, what would you be thinking? That's not fixing the problem. That's not the permanent solution. And the proof is I have to take care of it over and over and over. You see, these sacrifices had to be made over and over and over like filling air in a tire. Because as soon as a sacrifice had been, as soon as sin was dealt with by one sacrifice, more would pop up, and more would pop up, and more would pop up. Sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, sin. It's like dealing with dandelions in the front yard. The job is never done. You know, the Day of Atonement was the biggest event of the year where sacrifices were made for the sin of the people. But the author points something out. He says, think about it. The very fact that it came around every year means that last year's Day of Atonement hadn't completely taken care of the problem. There was always a need for one more, and one more, and one more. It was a reminder that sin had not been completely dealt with. Because as the author states in verse 4, these sacrifices can't take away Sin. They served as a covering for sin at that time and place in redemptive history, but but not to take away sin. They can't. And we have to remember the whole context of this book. You see, the author is writing to these Hebrew believers who were tempted to go back to that old system. And so the author is saying to them, 
Don't look to something that ultimately can't take away sin. And I'm pretty sure that most of us probably aren't tempted uh, to go back to animal sacrifices. Unless you have a cat and just, you know, kind of want to get rid of it. Just kidding for cat lovers. Um, (laughs) Okay, sorry. Back on track. Most of us probably aren't tempted to go back to animal sacrifices. But I would say most of us probably are tempted to look to things that to look to things to take away our sin that, that ultimately aren't able. Things that take away our sin that can't. Like doing good. I'm all for doing good, but not as a way to take away sin. Like, if, if, if I do enough good, then that'll cancel out the bad. It makes me um, think of a song called Last Kiss. It was written in uh, the 60s, but then it was uh, covered by Pearl Jam in the year 2000. I, I remember listening to it in my radio of my, my big rectangle car. And um, the chorus says something profound. It goes like this. Aware, aware can my baby be. The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I've got to be, somebody say it, good. So I can see my baby when I leave this world. She's gone to heaven, so I've got to be good. And I just want to reach through the stereo and sit down with that guy and say, I want that for you too. But your goodness can't cancel out the bad. But, but there is something that can. I've got to be good. I think it captures a common mentality. And not just in society at large, but also, if we're honest, in the church also. We believe in Jesus Christ but we are often looking to our good works to ultimately justify ourselves. I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and that's why God should accept me. I tithe, I go to Bible study, I go on missions, I'm a good Christian. All good things. Things that should flow from a relationship with God but not things that can save, not things that can take away sin, not things that can justify us, not things that can get us from here to here. I've got to be good. But when is good good enough? Where is the line? Is it when I look around and I'm as good as about 50% of the people I know? Or is it 75? Or is it or is it 90? How do, how do I know? What if I just hang around with people who aren't that good? What if, it's, what, if it's, what if I think it's here, but it's actually here? These questions drove um, Martin Luther to the point of utter despair. Martin Luther was a, if, if, was a very influential theologian from the fifth, 15th century. He's the father of um, the Protestant church. 
But in his early years as a monk, he constantly wrestled with the question, how good is good enough? He constantly felt like the bar was always above him and he didn't know, like, have I arrived now? Have I arrived now? And then all of a sudden he would be aware of his sin and then he would think, wait, 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 was that a minor sin or a major sin? How should I handle that? Did that knock me down a notch? What if I die before I can confess it? Does that mean I haven't been good enough? And it drove him to utter despair. His relationship with God was based on an unhealthy fear. Until one day the gospel gripped his heart. And he was set free. And that's why I want the gospel to grip our hearts Some of us are struggling, maybe not to the extent as Martin Luther. Some of us are struggling, trying to be good enough, trying to justify ourselves with our works, having a relationship with God based on unhealthy fear, trying to cancel out our own sin. And the author tells us, stop. Don't look to things that can't take away sin. So we've seen the can't section and now we move to the can section what can do it let's read verses five through nine verses five through nine consequently when christ came into the world he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Okay, so here the author points out by quoting from Psalm 40 in the Old Testament that sacrifices, the sacrificial system, was always seen as inferior to living a life fully devoted to God. In fact, there's a line of argument that goes straight through the Old Testament where multiple prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Micah, multiple prophets complain, uh, proclaim that if your life, if you're living your life out of line with God, the sacrifices are meaningless anyway. It was more important to God that you lived in line with His will, listening to Him, obeying Him, and loving Him. That's what it was always about. That was always above the sacrifices doing God's will. And then Jesus, the Messiah, prophesied about in Psalm 40 right here. Jesus, the Messiah, came and did just that. He lived a life completely in line with God's will. Like it says in verse 5, he, he devoted his body, his whole entire being to do, verse 7, God's will. He fulfilled the law. He lived a perfect life. And so he set aside the sacrifices as unnecessary. 
Verse 9. He does away with the first, the sacrifices, in order to establish the second, doing God's will. It was always about a life lived for God, and Jesus did it. That's what can do it. That's what can get someone from here to here. A perfect life. So that's who can do it. Jesus can do it. I, I used to have a, uh, a seminary professor who would say to the class, we are saved by works. And all the theology students would gasp. <gasps> and then he would say, the works of Jesus. He came to earth. To do what we could not do. He took on humanity and lived a life completely in in line with God's will. He lived a sinless, holy life. But let's take a step back and and realize that Jesus coming and fulfilling the law, not needing sacrifices, setting them aside, living a perfect life only gets... Him from here to here. Right? If we're only looking at His life, only He lived a perfect life. So only He gets from here to here. Unless something else happens. How? I'm glad you asked. That brings us to the how section, verses 10 through 18. Rest of the passage, verses 10 through 18. This is the how section. Let's read. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the how section. How can we get from here to here? Yes, Jesus could do it. He lived a perfect life, but how can we get from here to here? Look at verse 10. For the first time in this passage... The pronoun shifts. We have been sanctified. In other words, we have been made holy. How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Jesus came to earth, took on our humanity, lived a perfect life, did what we could never do, and then He stood in our place. As it says in verse 10, He offered His body His life for ours. In other words, He offered us an exchange. In essence, He said, I'll take your punishment and I'll give you my perfection. 
I will stand in your place as if I lived your life. And you can stand in my place as if you lived my life. Jesus not only lived a perfect life, he gave his perfect life. And in contrast to the priests who offered continual sacrifices, in verses 11 through 13, he did it once for all. A single offering for sins. And in contrast to them standing, he is seated. Like we've said before, his work is done. Like verse 18 says, when there's absolute 100% total forgiveness, there's no need for any further offering. Nothing more is needed. The work is done. And in contrast to sacrifices that can never take away sins, we read in verse 14, by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, that's how we can do it. That's how we can be cleansed once for all. Perfected for all time. I love that verse. It's one I often turn to. Perfected for all time. The original language of this verse uses uh, uses a special kind of verb that communicates a permanent, fixed, unchanging reality. From this point on, it will never change. In other words, this is the way it is and always will be. It's called the perfect tense. It's not often used, so when it is, it it stands out. It's meant to stand out. I think about how it frequently talks about our standing before God. I think of um, Jesus saying on the cross, It is finished. That's the perfect tense. I think of Romans 5.2. We stand in grace. That's the perfect tense. Tense, and then here, we have been perfected. He has perfected. We have been made and always will be forever perfect before God. Or like it says once again in verse 17, our sins are remembered no more. They are completely done away with past, present, and future for all time. We are once for all cleansed. These sacrifices can't do it. Jesus can do it and He gives it to us by exchanging us places. Can't. Can. How? And so as a conclusion, I, I, I want us to make the most of this precious gift. Being cleansed once for all, to live into it And what it means for our lives. Using that art metaphor. I want us to be able to see the beauty of it. And just be stunned by it. Just be taken by it. So as a conclusion, I want to point to a few things it could mean for us. Three things. Okay? Once for all cleansing means rest for our lives. Once for all cleansing means rest for our lives. So often, we are doing, 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 trying to make ourselves acceptable, trying to make ourselves okay, trying to justify ourselves in some way. And I know I mention this a lot, but 
I believe it's a human condition. And so as I look around the room, I see that we're all still humans. So we look to an achievement, a certain level of income, esteem, relationships, work, and we spend our lives doing, 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 chasing after these things like they'll finally make us okay and give us rest and security. But only Jesus brings us from here to here where we are right with God and experience ultimate acceptance, ultimate love, a firm identity and lasting security. We don't have to run around trying to save ourselves. We never could. We can rest in our perfect standing before God. Sometimes there's unrest in our lives because we live as if we're still on trial before God. Like He's still deciding the verdict on our lives. Have we been good enough or have we been too bad? He's still making up His mind. We need to live as those who have heard the gavel slam down and the verdict resound once for all you are and always will be not guilty. Your guilt has been fully and finally removed. We are forever free. And sometimes we live with unrest in our lives because although we know we are forgiven, we still feel the need to beat ourselves up. I'm working on this in my own life. Listen, there's such a thing as godly sorrow, which leads us to repentance, but there's also such a thing as false condemnation that hangs over us so that we feel the need to beat ourselves up for sin that has already been forgiven. And that is not of God. We are completely clean before Him. We can rest in that. Rest. Number two, once for all cleansing means joy for our lives. We can live a life not driven by guilt, fear, or shame, but joy. The joy of knowing that God looks at us and always sees the perfect life of Jesus. Sometimes we feel like our standing before God is Based on our performance. Like if I have a good day, I'm good before God. If I have a bad day, I'm bad before God. As believers, I want you to know every single moment of your life, God looks at you and sees the perfect, spotless, unstained, righteous life of Jesus. And that will never change. We can certainly please Him or grieve Him, but that does nothing to impact our standing before Him. So some of you right now need to hear this. You are not seen as dirty. You are not seen as stained. You are not seen as shameful. You are not seen as less than. You are seen as perfect forever. You are not defined by your sin. You are not defined by your past. You're not defined by how other people think of you. You're not defined by how you think of you. You are seen as perfect forever. And because of that, God looks at you and sees the perfect goodness of Jesus and delights over you. 
Do you believe that? That is joy. And some people might object, doesn't that make for lazy Christians? But I think it's actually the opposite. It makes for joyful Christians. And so we are free and driven to grow spiritually, not out of guilt or fear or shame or desperately trying to earn our salvation, but out of a grateful, genuine joy for the one who did all this for us. Joy. And number three, once for all cleansing means confidence to draw near to God. We never have to worry about being good enough to draw near to God's presence. The truth is we're not. We never could be. But He has forever made us good enough. We can draw near at any time. And so as we close, I'll invite the band to come forward. I want to invite us to take a moment now and pray in our seats to ask God for help to live into this, right? To not underutilize this aspect in our lives, to more fully appreciate it and take advantage of what it means for us. And if you've never taken, a, if you've never taken hold of it, I want you to know that you can today. Find someone who can pray with you and walk you through beginning a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for us. I believe we all need to hear this. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are cleansed once for all. If you're able, let's, let's uh, bow our heads and, and close our eyes and just take a minute to, to pray over this. Father, I thank You for what You have done for us by giving Your Son who gave His life. And I pray that You would help us to live into this, God. I pray that You would help us to take hold of it who have never taken hold of it before. I pray that You would help us to take advantage of it. The rest, the joy, the confidence in drawing near to You that it brings. Lord, I pray that Jesus would be seen as great in our lives, that our hearts would be gripped with the goodness of the good news, not something that we mentally acknowledge, but something, God, that impacts the way we live, that others would look at us and see how good it is so good that we couldn't even contain it within God. So Lord, I pray that You would do a work in our lives. You would do a work in our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.